This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In the 19th century, one group of American merchants reported an odd request from the Vietnamese emperor. An envoy from the emperor asked if the Americans could help procure a commodity brought by a previous delegation, a precious commodity that turned out to be a bottle of best Durham bottled mustard. That's just one small anecdote in Eric Taliakotso's latest book, In Asian Waters, Oceanic Worlds from Yemen to Yokohama, which charts hundreds of years of history across Asia's waters, from the South China Sea through the Persian Gulf. Eric weaves together historical research and on-the-ground fieldwork to show how Asia's oceans can be a better way to understand the region rather than its land borders. Eric Taliakotso is the John Stambaugh Professor of History at Cornell University. His many books include Secret Trades, Porous Borders, Smuggling in States Along a Southeast Asian Frontier, 1865 to 1915, and The Longest Journey, Southeast Asians and the Pilgrimage to Mecca. Today, Eric and I talk about these Asian waters, stretching from the Middle East to East Asia, and the history and fieldwork that went into Eric's book. So, Eric, thank you so much for joining me on the Asian Review of Books podcast today. You know, I, I want to start with um, your objective in, in writing in Asian waters. Um, it brings in a lot of history, a lot of uh, your own fieldwork. Um, it covers a broad, s- such a broad area. Uh, why did you want to write this book? And what's missing from our understanding of Asian history that pushed you to write the book? Well, yeah, thanks. It's very nice to be here, Nicholas. Uh, Thanks for having me on the podcast. I think what I was trying to do with this book is to kind of extend some of the themes that were interesting to me uh, in my first two books. Uh, My first book, uh, which was published with Yale in 2005, was a history of smuggling in Southeast Asia. And that was uh, something that tried to look at that particular problem in in Asian history in in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, My second book kind of fed off that first book and looked at the history of the pilgrimage to Mecca from Southeast Asia to the Arabian Peninsula. And that was published by Oxford in 2013. Um, And so this book, which again is about another eight or nine years after that, um, tries to look at the, perhaps the entire continuum of the sea routes that were implicated in the first two books. So instead of just focusing on smuggling or just focusing on religion, uh, the pilgrimage to Mecca, I was interested in trying to think about these sea routes as a continuum from uh, East Africa, the Middle East, South Asia, Southeast Asia, all the way up to uh, Northeast Asia. And there's not really too many books that try to do that sort of thing to take in all of that geography in one in one book. Uh, so that was something that I was trying to do from the outset with this particular monograph. In so you're looking at kind of 
almost the totality of history of, of these connections across the oceans, across the Indian and the South China Indian Ocean and the South China Sea. You know, you start by talking about uh, some of the earliest cross-ocean encounters between, or the earliest connections between those in Africa and those in East Asia. I wonder if you might kind of share uh, what you learned in your in your research into these connections. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, some of these connections between what we broadly think of as Africa and Asia go back really quite a long way. And that's a history that's been worked out by other people. I'm by no means the first person to disentangle these things. But um, they are very interesting and they go back, you know, possibly around 2000 years. There were uh, so-called raft sailors that moved between what is today Indonesia and the coast of East Africa. And it seems fairly clear now that some of these people who were making these journeys were doing this on rafts um, across the middle currents of the Indian Ocean, the middle latitudes of the Indian Ocean. There's a current there called Pritchard's Current, which uh, makes travel from east to west across the Indian Ocean possible. And these were, you know, amazing blue water journeys. Uh, the rafts would have been uh, probably filled. One of the things that made a journey like this possible was um, putting very large stems of bananas on the rafts uh, because they would ripen sequentially over a period of time. And that would give you uh, a steady uh, amount of food and probably catching fish along the way, uh, maybe a certain amount of rice that was kept uh, and that would, would also uh, be able to make those journeys. But from the DNA evidence that we have, that goes back really quite quite a long way. And that is one of the reasons why uh, the language spoken in Madagascar, right off the coast of East Africa, is actually an Austronesian language. It's called Malagasy. It's related to uh, other Indonesian languages across the Indian Ocean. And between the linguistic evidence, some of the crop evidence, uh, ethnomusicological evidence involving xylophones and some other instruments, and particularly this DNA evidence that I'm talking about, it, it seems clear that there were people coming from Asia to Africa, um, you know, 1500, possibly even 2000 years ago. Uh, and that the legacy of those voyages is still with us now uh, when we hear people speak Malagasy in, in Madagascar off the coast of East Africa. So what about the the trade connections in places like the South China Sea, you know, how did these, I guess, how did these trade connections grow? And how did, you know, the movement of goods and I guess people back and forth help kind of knit this part of the ocean together? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, one of the constants in this that history was the kind of tribute trade that moved between China and various Southeast Asian polities across the expanse of the South China Sea. So this was uh, a kind of an ever-present uh, over the centuries. It was it waxed and waned in, in different amounts of importance, different amounts of volume, different numbers of voyages that were actually going. But for quite a long time, the traditional worlds of Asia were knit together through this tribute trade to China. And that was something that happened across the South China Sea for many different centuries. And we have records of this, uh, particularly from Chinese dynastic records from the different Chinese dynasties that go back quite a long way. Um, but of course, there were also connections between other places in Southeast Asia uh, itself and that were not predicated just on uh, relationships with China. So for example, <clears throat> one good 
mention here would be that um, on the central coast of Vietnam, we have a, 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 a civilization that flourished called the Cham civilization. And here again, just to get back to that same notion of language, uh, the Austronesian languages that traveled across the Indian Ocean to East Africa uh, uh, also traveled across the South China Sea to central Vietnam. So on the coasts of central Vietnam, instead of a, a Vietnamese linguistic evidence, we have Cham uh, evidence of this Cham civilization, which seems to have been um, Austronesian in character and not more based on the mainland. So it was a civilization that had originally come from the island world of Southeast Asia and brought certain attributes from the island world of Southeast Asia. So that is really interesting uh, to think about how the South China Sea was kind of crisscrossed by these different kinds of voyages from a very early date. And the voyages were moving in, in different uh different directions and for for different reasons at different times. You know, you, you mentioned one of your, I guess, I guess your first book was about smuggling. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. And, and it reminds me that, that, that you talk about smuggling um, in this book as well. I guess what, what's interesting about, um, about kind of the illicit trade um, in goods kind of between, between these different regions, How, what does that tell us about, about this region? Well, one of the things that's really important in understanding this part of the world is that the modern European conception of borders came to the region relatively late. What we think of as a, a kind of normative world of borders and states, this was something that was in, inherited via Europe, via kind of post-Westphalia. Uh, and it, it's not something that has a long duration in most parts of the world. And uh and along the Asian sea routes, that's that's also true too. So the notion of smuggling was something often quite other in this part of the world than uh, what we see when Europeans start to build empires in this part of the planet. When Europeans were able to finally start really influencing these maritime connections between different parts of South and Southeast Asia, also up into East Asia, uh, they started to get interested in the tensile strength between their particular uh, spheres of influence in this part of the world. So imperial powers like Britain and the Netherlands intervened and interfered in the development of uh, the kind of normative patterns of commerce on these Asian oceans. And by doing so, they started to uh, make legal and make illegal certain kinds of passage that had existed for many centuries before that. Uh, so one of the ways, for example, that this was done in the Indian Ocean was through the Portuguese in the early centuries of contact in the 16th and 17th centuries uh, with the so-called cartage system or passport system, whereby people who had normatively traveled on the oceans and didn't need any permission to do so, now the Portuguese said, you need to have a pass, a cartage uh, given by the Portuguese that allows you to move between these places. And that made illegal the passage of goods outside of those circuits. And we see this happening in Southeast Asia as well as the British and the Dutch, uh, for example, started to erect a border between them in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Certain kinds of commodities that had moved for a very long time before that were now made illegal because the British and the Dutch uh, wanted to tax these commodities or they didn't want them moving in the first place because they were nervous about some of these things that were moving across the South China Sea. So we watched this happening over time and it uh, and thinking about these illicit trades and kind of the histories that they have in this part of the world 
is really fascinating to try to tabulate. So you mentioned Empire, and I have lots of questions on Empire. Um, but before I get into kind of maybe some of the bigger questions on Empire, I did want to talk about one particular um, historical anecdote that you bring up in your book, and that's the story of the, um, I'm going to forget the title, but I guess the one of the kings of Vietnam, whoever was in charge of Vietnam at the time, and the discovery that he was a huge fan of mustard, <laughs> specifically a certain kind of mustard brought over, um, I believe from the UK, but maybe I've gotten that historical detail wrong. And I wonder if I might talk a little bit about, I, 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 I guess about that particular anecdote, but also kind of what that tells us about Vietnam, about trade and between Europe and, and Asia, um, and just kind of more about this story. Sure. Yeah, this is a small story, which seems to have uh, caught on with some valence with um, different people, which is, is quite interesting to me because it's a, it's a very small story, but something that kind of illustrates larger themes, I think. And this was one particular 19th century Vietnamese emperor became very fond of uh, uh, what was called best Durham mustard from, from England. Uh, this was a kind of uh, um, mustard that probably was a fairly day-to-day uh, -day item. Mustard is not an expensive spice. Uh, it was something that was not considered to be all that fancy in, in England. But of course, by the time it got out to Vietnam, it was a real luxury good and something uh, very exotic. And this particular emperor... Uh, got interested in this. Now, the problem was that Vietnam uh, during this time period was was kind of opening and closing to, to trade with outsiders um, alternately. And the notion that, the, that this particular Vietnamese king was trying to kind of insulate his kingdom from what he saw as the vagaries of international commerce, uh, which he saw correctly to, to be dangerous because the world was changing in front of his eyes, uh, was kind of at odds with the fact that he really seemed to like this kind of mustard. So one of his envoys actually spoke to a foreign trader and said, gave him some very old kind of probably almost flavorless mustard at that point and said someone had, had brought this mustard on a previous trading voyage and would this particular trader know how to get any more of this particular Durham mustard? Uh, and I think what that little episode shows us in, in, in kind of in embryo is the fact that these roots were dangerous. Uh, there, it was absolutely the case that a number of Asian sovereigns uh, gauged that correctly and saw that the world was changing in front of their eyes and they, they needed to be very careful who they traded with, lest a foot came into the door and propped the door open for uh, taking kingdoms more forcibly after that, which happened, of course, again and again in Asian history. But at the same time, there was a real... Um, there was a real amount of desire that was uh, uh, implicated in the roots as well, because there were all kinds of strange, new, wonderful things that were traveling on these roots, some of them as prosaic and as mundane as best Durham mustard. You know, we, we, we've talked a lot about the South China Sea, um, and that's understandable because, you know, I'm based in East Asia, so that's why, but um, but obviously there the ocean kind of expands westward as well, out towards South Asia and the Middle East, um, and I guess if we're going to talk about South Asia, the question about empire in Europe is important there too. How these European, how do these European powers, um, I guess, engage with, meddle with, um, influence the development of these kind of trading networks, these maritime connections, uh, in, 
in this part of the ocean, in, in South Asia and the Middle East. Yeah, there was a, a very long history of this. And um, by the 16th and 17th centuries, quite a number of Europeans were involved on the coasts of India, for example. We know, of course, about the English East India Company, which becomes the main player in dealing with South Asia and eventually morphs into the, the British Empire in, in, in India or the Raj. But there were other players too. The French were important for a time up into the last uh, uh, decades of the 18th century. There was, it seemed that there might be a contest between the British and the French for influence in India. And that was only really settled uh, towards the end of the 18th century, when it became clear that the British were going to be the paramount power there, and the French were going to concentrate more on other places. Uh, and eventually, in this part of the world, the main place that the French got involved is what they called Indochine, or, or their Indochinese empire in what is today Vietnam, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. But there were other players too. The Dutch East India Company was important in various parts of the coasts of India, and of course, also in Sri Lanka, where cinnamon uh, was grown in large quantities. Uh, but there were even other players. Uh, uh, so, for example, you can still go uh, and find um, uh, the Danish uh, uh, had had a presence on the coasts of uh, South Asia as well, and other other players uh, did as well. Uh, small presences, if you can go. Today, really, one of the very few places that you, you feel a French presence is in Pondicherry on the southeastern coast of India. But you can also find Portuguese presence in places like Goa and Diu. Uh, these are two places on the west coast of India where um, you feel echoes of the Portuguese empire. So the Portuguese, the Danes, the Dutch, the British, the French, all were involved in this uh, um, uh, trading history of India and Sri Lanka places like this. So uh, that that kind of history waxed and waned over the centuries. And it was only towards the end of this uh, history, as we get to the late 18th century and into the 19th century, that it be became clear that the Dutch, uh, that the British were going to become the most important power. So I wanted to shift tack. We, we've talked a lot about um, history, you know, historical, historical research. But um, parts of your book are also connected to the field work that, that you did in the region. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, I guess, what, what brought you to the region in the first place, um, the kinds of field work that you did, and how that influenced parts of, of, uh, of in Asian waters. Sure. Yeah, I had grants over various uh, periods of time to go and do field work in different parts of Asia. Um, so this was done in different places and at different times for different projects. So, for example, one of the chapters in the book looks at the passage of sea produce in what, what I call Sino-Southeast Asia in that particular chapter, moving all kinds of sea products, moving between the various countries of Southeast Asia and the coasts of China, where there was a huge market for this sea produce as a kind of uh, luxury goods that went to upper class people on the coasts of China. And that still exists. I mean, as China has gotten larger and wealthier, that uh, that conveyor belt kind of shuttling Southeast Asian sea products to the coast of China has only gotten stronger uh, over time. There's another chapter that looks at the history of spices on the coasts of southern India, both the Malabar coast in southwest India and the Coromandel coasts of southeastern India, and how 
that encouraged uh, Indian diasporas to move to different places. And in that particular chapter, I focus on uh, Indian spice traders um, going to Southeast Asia, but getting most of their spices from Southern India and speaking to those particular communities. So there was field work done at various points um, on, again, various projects uh, and that were tied together in this book under the notion of thinking about how, how things traveled by sea. And here, the, the things could be various commodities like sea products or like spices, and the communities that were trading them could be different diasporas like the Indian diaspora in the Eastern Indian Ocean or the Chinese diaspora in the South China Sea. And I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you have one chapter in your book where you go to the southern Philippines to talk with, um, I guess, the Muslim communities there. What brought you to that part of the world? And you know, what were you hoping to learn from talking to communities there? Yeah, one of the chapters focuses on the southern Philippines and looks both historically and through fieldwork uh, about the experiences of Islam and Christianity in the southern Philippines in one particular place, a, a port city called Zamboanga, which is in some ways the kind of the, the, the southernmost part of the Philippines and starting to be uh, the end of one world, which is the, 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 the Philippines and the beginning of another world, which is Malaysia and Indonesia. And this is just about as far as Islam stretched from Mecca and Medina in the Middle East eastwards into the sea routes of Asia. So I was very interested in that chapter at uh, looking at these kinds of histories, both histories going back 500, 600 years when Islam first started to come to what we now call the Southern Philippines, but also the intervening centuries and how that presence changed um, in conflict and in cooperation at different points with um, Christianity in that particular country. And this is a history that has, um, it's a cataclysmic history in some ways. It's been a history of war and strife, but also, as, as I learned from doing a lot of interviews there, both with Muslims and with Christians, it's been a history of accommodation to some degree too. So that's been very, very interesting for me was to find out about that particular history and when I was uh, sent south uh, after speaking to the kind of various Muslim uh, offices in Manila and Quezon City, the, the, the kind of the center of authority and, and rule in the Philippines, I went, went, went south and uh, with contacts that were given to me by the Muslim offices there to speak to Muslim Filipinos in the south. But I wasn't really talking so much about the strife that is going on there or the secessionary movements, but more about that long history of connection to other parts of the Muslim and Christian worlds. And this chapter was a was a dyad with a with a second chapter which took place in the Indian Ocean which looked at not Islam and Christianity but the movements of Hinduism and Buddhism across the Indian Ocean from uh, what is today South Asia to Southeast Asia. So I I, I want to ask one more question about uh, a, about a chapter in your book and that's the chapter on lighthouses. Um, specifically kind of kind of the the colonial efforts to build lighthouses throughout Southeast Asia. Um, again, kind of why devote a chapter to this particular historical, um, I guess whatever this 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 historical trend, this historical event, what does that tell us about uh, about the South China Sea? Sure. Um, well, the last two chapters of the book focused on uh, a, a last theme, which was about technology and the sea. <laughs> And one of the chapters focused on the, the growth 
uh, and spread of lighthouses as colonial instruments of coercion in the 19th and 20th centuries in island Southeast Asia. And the other chapter focuses on the growth and uh, spread of hydrographic mapping, that is mapping by the sea. And between these two different kinds of technologies, lighting and sea mapping, I wanted to just see how technology came to be important on the sea routes of Asia as well. And lighthouses, I argued in that particular chapter, we could see from a, a kind of Foucauldian lens and thinking about the ideas of Michel Foucault, who has talked about the, the prison, the birth of the modern prison. And here he was engaging with ideas first put forward by Jeremy Bentham about the, the, the notion of the development of the panopticon, which was uh, uh, a prison whereby watchers were at the center Inmates were in, in a circle all, all around uh, uh, the watchers. And if you were one of the inmates, you never knew whether the center was looking at you. And this modulated your behavior. And I, what I tried to argue in the book is that lighthouses had a very similar function to this kind of Foucauldian analysis of prisons in, in, uh, uh, in England and in Europe at that particular time. A little bit later, as Europeans started to fan out into Southeast Asia, they, again, came to places like what we now call Indonesia, 17,000 islands of Indonesia, the world's largest archipelago. And the building of these lighthouses, I argue, towards the end of the book, was uh, in some ways very similar to this Foucauldian project of uh, uh, the panopticon that he describes in thinking about prisons, the birth of the modern prison in Europe. Uh, so I think and hope I was able to make a case that uh, the expansion of these kinds of lighthouses did something similar for Europeans in being able to surveil and coerce indigenous behavior uh, along the sea routes of Asia. Uh, and that was what I was trying to do in that last portion of the book. Right. I mean, you, you make this point um, kind of in this section where uh, it's both how the, the, the natural environment is affects kind of the development of, of human societies in the area, but also that the presence of human society then changes the environment, changes how we understand the environment, I guess, in part through things like surveying and and these lighthouses. Um, you, you, you can correct me if I've mischaracterized the point you've made in this chapter. No, I think that's right to some degree. Um, what What's interesting is to look at the ways that indigenous polities in the region also adopted some of these technologies. They tried to learn uh, some of these technologies, often they were not allowed to learn the, the particular technologies, but they found other ways to do this as well. So, for example, lighthouses, some Malay sultans on particular uh, islands in Southeast Asia uh, only gave the, the British or the Dutch rights to put up uh, lighthouses on their territory if they would get some kind of financial re remuneration for that or could collect some of the taxes. So it was interesting to watch how this worked. Uh, uh, sometimes this was a negotiation. Sometimes it was more forced. But as the imperial project advanced over the over the course of time, uh, uh, course of time, it became less less and less of a negotiation and more and more uh, coerced. But watching how these technologies spread across the region shows us how important technology was to the maritime. Um, uh, maritime history of the region. You know, perhaps to for my last question to shift from history to um, the Asia of today. Uh, you know, does does kind of starting from I guess starting from the ocean, starting 
taking a view of Asia that looks at the maritime connections rather than, um, I guess, polities on land or, or however you want to you want to describe it. How does kind of focusing on the ocean allow us to better understand the Asia of today? Yeah, I think that um, the the connectivity of Asia is better seen from the sea than it is from the land. We live in a world now where there are these atom-thin lines that separate countries on a map. And although there's no actual uh, boundary between many of these different countries, uh, that atom-thin boundary actually exists in terms of the law and trying to enforce the law of what moves across boundaries, what kinds of actions people are allowed to um, to to commit on a, on a daily basis in terms of speaking against the government, uh, et cetera, et cetera, moving commodities across boundaries, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what's useful in taking a maritime approach is you see how things flow between places and less how things stop at the borders because they don't always stop at the borders. People move, material moves, ideas move uh, across these spaces. And particularly in the academy where most of us are divided up into scholars of, let's say, West Asia or, the, or what in this country, the United States is called the Middle East, scholars of South Asia, scholars of Southeast Asia, scholars of East Asia, these rubrics become reified. Uh, they almost become ossified into categories that reflect uh, um, uh, actual ontological lived, uh, lived experience. But for the most part, I think people are able to move across these different rubrics, and uh, not always, but in, in particular cases, it's interesting to watch this from the sea because it gives us much more of an idea of the fluidity of history and the movement of history rather than the more stationary ideas of having people uh, bounded uh, by, by the nation state or by a region. So with that, that's a great place to end our interview with Eric Taliakotso, author of In Asian Waters, Oceanic Worlds from Yemen to Yokohama, Eric, I do actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you? What might the next project be? Thanks, Nicholas. Um, yeah, so the book is just out um, just a short while ago with Princeton University Press. And uh, because the book just came out, uh, to tell you the truth, I'm taking a rest now. I have a, a, a day job, which is teaching and administering at Cornell University. So I'm involved in that. We're in the middle of the semester right now. And uh, yeah, after, after long labors with that book, eight or nine years um, from start to finish, it's, it's been time to just take a bit of a rest and restock. So we'll see what happens next. But I'm I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to do yet at this point, uh, but I think I'm going to be probably still involved in the sea one way or the other. That seems to be the main thread running through the work over the last several decades. Well, I I, I, I hope you get a much-deserved break after after writing this, um, after writing in Asian waters. Um, you can find me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. It's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can find the Asian Review of Books at asianbooks.com or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and newbooksnetwork.com. This podcast is on all of your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. If you want to support us, continue to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned to learn more who's coming up on the show. But before then, Eric, thank you so much for joining me today.
Thanks very much for having me, Nicholas.